Good morning, Forest View. Welcome to the Week of Joy. Let's start off with a poem, which is actually a prayer this morning. Dear Lord, I've swept and I've washed, but still nothing is as shining as it should be for you. Under the sink, for example, is an uproar of mice, for it is their season of many children. What shall I do? And under the eaves and through the walls, the squirrels have gnawed their ragged entrances, but it is the season where they need shelter, so what shall I do? And the raccoon limps into the kitchen and opens the cupboard while the dog snores, the cat hugs the pillow. What shall I do? Beautiful is the new snow falling in the yard and the fox who is staring boldly up the path to the door. And still, I believe you will come, Lord. You will. And when I speak to the fox, the sparrow, the lost dog, the shivering sea goose, know that I'm really speaking to you whenever I say, as I do all morning and afternoon, come in, come in. And we may feel a bit like that this morning. Whatever the mice and squirrels look like for you, whatever form they may come in, this is the season of a lot of busyness and interruptions, and I'm sure you all have long lists of things to do and places to be. Um, this can tend to be a, seri a, a season of tiredness and weariness. Somehow I think the Christmas season also heightens this conflict we feel between the way we think things should be and the way things actually are between the ideal and the reality, and lots of times we're disappointed. We're disappointed in the way that things are because they are not the way things are supposed to be. And we can be wishing for something different. But still I wanna say that this morning we can still say, come in Jesus, come in. And in fact, we especially can say that, for this is the season for those of us wanting something different, something better. I love this idea of Advent being a journey on our way to Jesus each year and that we have four weeks to prepare for the arrival of Christ. It's, it's one of the wisdoms of the church calendar that every 12 months we find ourselves back in this spot, finding our way back to Jesus and reminding ourselves that just as Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he still comes today to our particular circumstances and to our particular place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in spirit, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. So this morning, blessed are those who are troubled in spirit. Blessed are those who are looking forward to something greater to come. For Advent and the coming of Christ is for us. So together in the poem this morning, let's say, come in, Jesus, come in. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here this morning. Quiet our minds, ease our hearts. Jesus, come to us again. For you are Emmanuel, you are with us. May we be fully present to you and to each other this morning. May your joy be in us, and may it be full. Amen. So, the week of joy. 
Our passage for this morning is Luke 1, and we're going to be focusing on Mary's song, Mary's Magnificent. Um, but I'm going to go back a little bit to last week just to put this in context for this week. And Doug read those scriptures last week about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, telling her the news that she was going to have a baby who was the Son of God. And Doug, I just have to tell you, I was here last night to rehearse things, and Simon and Paul were my audience. And as I got up to preach, Simon started chanting, We want love day. We want love day. I told them that you would be back next week. <laughs> but really, this is one of our favorite passages about the birth of Jesus, the surprising news, the incredible conception, Mary's response, that all lead to her song, The Magnificent. So to fully appreciate The Magnificent and how she got there, I want to take a look at the first part of this story, which is Mary's response to the angel's news and how that leads her to her song, which is characterized by so much joy. So when we read the, the story about Mary, we can imagine what a difficult situation she finds herself in. And Doug talked about this last week, about being unwed and pregnant at this time in history would not have been an easy thing. And not only is she pregnant, but there's no father, at least there's no human father. So to explain this to family and friends, is difficult. And it says in Luke 1 that she was perplexed. And no wonder. And yet, despite the absurdity of the situation she finds herself in, she believes the angel and believes that what he says is true and possible. And the two lines that Mary says are, how can this be? And then later on, she says, here am I, a servant of the Lord, let it be. So when we read this story about Mary and her news that she's going to have a baby, we might think of another woman in the Bible who also received surprising news that she was going to have a baby. And back in Genesis 18, we read the story of Abraham and Sarah. Remember this one? There's three strangers who come to visit Abraham and Sarah, and... Um, one of them is God, and he, he tells Abraham that next year at this time, Sarah will have a baby. And Sarah's inside the tent, and it says, Sarah laughed. She scoffed and asked herself, a woman my age have a baby with a husband as old as mine? Sarah's response to the news of pregnancy was laughter, and not sweet, joyful sort of laughter, but scoffing, cynical laughter. And no wonder, this was an impossible situation. Her and Abraham had been married for years, and A plus B should have been equaling C, and yet there was no C. Something that should have happened wasn't happening. It wasn't the way it should have been. And so when the angel appears to Sarah and tells her impossible news, she's cynical, she scoffs. There is no way this can be. And Mary's situation is similar in lots of ways. There was no way that she should be having a baby. Physically, it was impossible. Mary had A, and there was no B, and yet C was happening. Something that should not have been happening, and yet it was. This was impossible. And yet, with the, when the angel comes to Mary and tells her this impossible news, Mary is curious, and she wonders. Instead of this can't be, 
the way Sarah responds, she responds with, how can this be? And I wonder if there's something here for us to take note of. I want to tell you a little story about my mother-in-law. I should have a picture here coming up. Some of you know her. She's almost 85. This fall, she fell down the stairs carrying a bucket of laundry, and she badly broke her leg. 911 was called. Fast forward, she's been in hospital for several months and will be for at least another month, and hopefully she will walk again. The short story is, is that she will never go back to their house the 55 years that she left that morning. It's been sold, they'll be moving. It's been no picnic, to say the least. Lots of things to be disappointed in, lots of things to grieve, and rightly so. And at the same time, she's wondered what this might be an opportunity for. One night, we had a long talk in the hospital, and um, there was lots of I wonders, or maybes. Maybe this is a chance for spiritual renewal. At 85, imagine. Or maybe this will be good for Bob and I. Maybe this will be a chance to see God in new ways. Who knows? And the thing is, is she, she doesn't know, and we don't know. There's lots of uncertainties. But she's curious, and her heart is open. It was so interesting to watch that conversation develop and to see where it went. What I know is that her curiosity, her submission to the circumstances, and her readiness to be obedient is going to open the, the door for joy for her. We know that life is supposed to be different. Life throws all sorts of impossible things at us. Things that should be happening that aren't, like marriages should be happening, uh, marriages should be happy, neighborhoods should be safe, babies should be happy, countries should live in peace together. There's lots of things that should be happening but aren't, and there's lots of things that shouldn't be happening but are. And you think of innocent people being killed, persecution of Christians, people in their prime dying. Just read the news or talk to anybody and you scratch the surface and there is hard stuff. Us cynics know this. We're cynical because we're disappointed. Because something in us is that life is supposed to be better. And so we respond, whether with doubt or disbelief or anger or misery or whatever it is because part of us has stopped believing that God can redeem or that he's got the last word. But what if we responded to these hard things with curiosity like Mary, to the difficult and seemingly impossible things in our lives and in the world around us, acknowledging the difficulty and the wrongness of them, but at the same time wondering, I wonder how God could redeem this. God is the great redeemer. I wonder how God could bring love and light into this broken relationship or this broken situation. Reminding ourselves that God is good and that he's going to bring it all together in the end. But how? I wonder how. And there's lots of opportunities that we can think this, yeah, this one. What about this? How could God redeem this? But if we keep our hearts open to the ideal, the way that God wants things to be, and if we keep our eyes open to see how he's going to do it. 
This approach of curiosity requires a certain amount of belief and trust in God that he will keep his promises, that he's going to do what he, he said he would do. And it also requires on our part a bit of humility to recognize that we don't see the whole picture. Anne Lamott says, love always bats last. God is going to have the last word. We're right in the middle of the story now. And there's lots of things we don't understand right now. But we know how it all ends. God wins. So curiosity is the one thing I want us to notice about Mary. And the next thing is obedience. But Paul, could you get me a glass of water, please? Thank you. The, okay, so the first thing I want us to notice about Mary is her curiosity. How is this going to happen? The other thing is obedience. And her response of, here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said is such a beautiful response of submission to the circumstances and obedience to God. Thanks, honey. The thing is, is obedience matters. This whole being a Christian thing is not just adhering to a certain set of beliefs. It's orthodoxy plus orthopraxy. Faith without works is is dead, is what James says. But what it comes down to is how we spend our life matters. So everything matters. It's how we spend our money matters, how we love our kids, our parents, how we treat our neighbors, how we care for the earth, how honestly we do business, how we share our money with the least of these, how we treat our baristas and cashiers. All of this matters if we're going to be obedient to the ways of God. God has said things and instructed us about the way to live life, partly because he knows what's going to bring us joy. The thing about cynicism and anger and treating other people poorly is that it is pretty satisfying for a while, especially if you have someone to revel in it with you. It is fun, it feels good, it feels like you can get all this out and uh, But the thing is, is the next morning is we wake up with a hangover of all this stuff and we don't feel any better. It doesn't lead to joy. In fact, it leads to anxiety and despair. But obedience often paves the way for joy and for peace of mind. It at least opens the door for joy. It doesn't make for easy solutions or easy situations, circumstances. In fact, sometimes those circumstances don't change at all. We look at Mary's circumstances, and they actually kind of went from bad to worse. Mary being obedient to the angel Gabriel doesn't pave the way to a smooth life for her. And as we continue to read her story, we find out she doesn't have a cute nursery or her mother bringing over dinner. In fact, she ends up fleeing the country as a refugee so her baby isn't killed. I was talking with a friend who had a difficult relationship with a family member. And it was awful. She couldn't stand this person. In fact, she even got called display for this one person <laughs> so she would know which calls not to answer. Everything about this person annoyed her. And the thought of enjoying a happy relationship with her seemed impossible. 
but she's a determined girl, and she did not like the spot she was in. So she prayed and asked God to make her thankful. So I asked her a little bit later, I said, what, whatever happened there? Like, how are you doing with all that? And she laughed, and she said, oh, Elizabeth, you wouldn't believe it. She said, but I, I love her now. I, I really do. She says, nothing's changed. She still says the same things and does the same things. She says, but I don't know. I really do love her now. And somehow those things that used to bug me don't matter so much anymore. She said, I guess I find them more quirky now than annoying. I thought, aha, the situation hadn't changed, but obedience had opened the way to joy for her. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, says, Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It's not what we have, what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we're walking in the way of faith and obedience. So really what this means is this, is we don't pursue joy, we pursue obedience, and joy will often follow. So curiosity and obedience open the door for joy to enter in. When I started thinking about joy for our Advent series, I thought about Lauren Fowler. Her husband Jefferson is a youth pastor here, and I don't know if you know this, but she's written a book. And I read it last winter, and it's funny and insightful and thoughtful. And in her book, Lauren gives a good understanding of what it means to live with anxiety. So when this topic of joy came up, I was wondering how these intersect. How does joy intersect with living with anxiety? And so I talked to Lauren, and she said I could share what we talked about. Um, there was two main things that Lauren told me. She said, first of all, is that joy is always possible. Don't think just because you live with depression or anxiety or whatever it is that joy is out of reach. Um, she said it's not. Joy is possible, even in the midst of those. And the second thing she said was that joy is a choice. And she says joy comes easily for some people, but for other people it is more of a discipline. <clears throat> and so Lauren purposefully makes joy a habit. And she said it's important not to wait for circumstances to change, or for you to feel better, but to choose joy now. And she says the way that she does that is it always comes back to thinking about someone else or something else. So she said sometimes it's inviting somebody over for coffee. Sometimes it's loving her dogs. There we go. Um, she said thinking about her dogs, taking care of them. She said, she, she, she said at one point in her life, it was actually serving breakfast at a homeless shelter, which normally would cause great anxiety, <laughs> but it actually brought great joy. Or she, or she said, shopping on Amazon for the perfect gift for Jefferson. Thinking about someone else. Um, and she said these were the things that she has in place for deliberately choosing joy, making joy a habit. But it's obedience, isn't it? It's obedience to the things that God has called us to, to do, which is to love others and to serve. So that's what we see here in this passage from Luke, how Mary's curiosity and obedience lead her to joy, which is so beautifully evident then in the Magnificent Her Song. So let's read that passage. Okay, so we've got 
In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. There's lots in this passage, and we could go a hundred directions this morning, but the one I want to think about this morning is the simple message is that God is in the business of making things right within us and in the world around us. God is in the business of making things right, sending the rich away empty, filling the hungry with good things, bringing down the powerful, lifting up the lowly, scattering the proud. God is behind everything that is good, true, and beautiful. God wants to make things right. We read it in the Magnificent. We see it in the life of Jesus. This is what Jesus is all about. Paul and I were talking about this, and he says, oh, this sounds just what I'm reading for my class. And it was from a commentary by Talbert on Ephesians and Colossians. <clears throat> and this is what he said. In the story of the Bible, there are two threads running through the narrative. <clears throat> two threads. The thread of God's redeeming activity and the thread of human fallenness. The reader must decide which thread the narrative is illustrating. Only with discernment does the reader know what is approved and what is disapproved in the biblical narrative. Anywhere the reader meets the domination of the woman by the man, discernment says this is evidence of the fall. Anywhere where one sees women and men being treated equally as persons, there is a sign of God's redeeming work. The same kind of reasoning applies also to slavery. In the stories about creation, there is no hint of slavery. The narrative after the fall assumes slavery. This tells the reader that slavery was not a part of God's intention in creation, but as a result of the fall. Where, wherever, therefore, one encounters slavery in the story that follows, one knows that it is an illustration of fallenness. So I know he's talking about men and women and slavery, but the same sort of thing applies. This thread, this redemptive thread running through history and this fallen thread. And I know this isn't rocket science, and yet I'm amazed how we get so easily confused with this sometimes. Anything that is ugly and dishonest and evil is not from God. That is the fallen narrative. And when we see things that are wrong and unjust, unfair, it is not God. It is not God trying to teach us a lesson, 
Our God not caring, our God not being strong enough. God doesn't give us cancer so that we learn to pray. He doesn't cause us to be sexually assaulted so we learn to be careful. He doesn't put you in a car accident or take away people you love just to teach you a lesson or to prove a point. That's brokenness. That is the evil one. It is life tainted by the evil one. It is the serpent, and although his head has been crushed, he is still writhing and doing whatever he can. I want us to take a look at this painting by the Sisters of the Mississippi. It is called The Virgin Mary Consoles Eve. So we've got Mary on the right. She's pregnant with Jesus. We've got Eve with the fruit in her hand on the left. You'll notice the serpent is wrapped around Eve's leg. And if you look closely, the head of the serpent is under Mary's heel as she crushes him. This is what's prophesied in Genesis, if you remember. I want to insert a story here from the farm. When I was growing up, on a farm in Alberta, we raised turkeys and chickens. And when the first snow fell uh, in the fall, we would butcher them in time for Christmas. So the first step in butchering chickens is you corral them all together, and then you catch each one, and you have to cut its head off, usually with an axe. The chicken will usually run around still for a bit after its beheading. That's the phrase, running around like a chicken with its head cut off. It was dead. The chicken was dead, but it was still moving. And that's what I think of when I think about the evil one. After the incarnation and the resurrection, we know that death has been beaten or beheaded. We know how the story ends. But in the meantime, there are still shocks and waves of darkness, and the evil one is still desperately doing all he can until his time is up. Ever since the evil one tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, God has been in the business of making things right again. And this is the redemptive narrative. It says in Hebrews that long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But now in these final days, he has spoken to us through Jesus. Jesus arriving as a clump of cells in, the, in a young girl's womb. This is God making things right again between him and us in between each other. And we, as his sons and daughters and friends, were invited to participate with him, to cooperate with him, to also be in the business of making things right again. I consulted with John Francis, one of our resident theologians about joy, and he sent me this definition. It says, joy is a disposition grounded ultimately in a deep and sustained attunement to what God has done and promised to do in Christ. So this is the disposition of joy, being tuned in to what God is doing and what he's promised to do. And being tuned in doesn't mean just mentally agreeing with, but actually being a part of, being a part of this redemptive narrative. So let's, let's do it. Let's be part of this redemptive narrative that God is directing. And there is so much work to be done. There's African-American men on death row in the southern states for crimes they did not commit. Someone has to say something. 
we're slowly filling our oceans with garbage. Single-use plastics are part of the fallen world. Something has to be done. There's people who live without access to clean water in 2018. That is not a part of the redemptive narrative. There's little girls up north on reservations who have been so traumatized that they've chosen mutism over speech. And there's young men and women in hotel rooms being bought and sold for sexual purposes. This is the fallen narrative that needs to be redeemed. So for us at Forest View this, this Christmas, there's things that we can do and there's things that we've been doing. We've been singing with our senior citizens in our communities across the street and at Tansley. There's new immigrants at next door who need to be neighbored. And there's people who are going to eat Christmas treats with them and practice English with them tonight. There's a camp down in Ecuador that wants to share Christmas dinner with their neighbors and we can be a part of it. But let's be part of the redemptive narrative and cooperate with God in making things right so that we can sing our own songs of joy, our own magnificence, for God is up to something good and we can be a part of it. Although Jesus came as a baby to a certain place at a certain time, part of the mystery of the incarnation is that this continues to happen. God continues to come to us. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we know that this still happens and that he continues to come and live with us and be with us. I want to share something with you this morning that captures this idea of God with us, Emmanuel, just as he was with Mary 2,000 years ago. There's a book. It's called A Northern Nativity. It's by William Kurlak. He's a Canadian artist from the 20th century. He's the son of Ukrainian immigrant parents. And he settled on a farm um, east of Edmonton and then later moved to Toronto. When he was a teenager, he had this series of dreams based on the Christmas story, wondering if it happened then, why couldn't it happen now? And if it happened there, why couldn't it happen here? And some of the pictures are going to be on the screen as I talk for the next couple of minutes, but he does this series of paintings of the incarnation happening across Canada. So he does a painting of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the Arctic. He does one of them in the Rocky Mountains. He does one of them on a on a cattle farm um, on the prairies. Uh, he's got one, a picture of them in front of Ni Niagara Falls. Um, another one uh, with the parliament buildings in the background. And then all the way to the east coast of um, Mary and Joseph, you know, in, in the middle of a little fishing village. What he does is it captures our imagination of the incarnation still happening and what it would look like in our home, in our city. What, what would it look like for God to enter this Christmas or to enter our world around us? Where around us, within us, needs the presence of God? Kurlak does this amazing job of making us think that happened then, but what if it was to happen again? And we know that God continues to want to do 
good things, to bring about good things, and we can be a part of it. So as we go live our lives this week, joy matters. And joy is possible. The first question in the Westminster Catechism asks what the chief end of man is. And the answer is, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Joy is supposed to characterize us as the people of God. Phyllis McGinley, she's an American poet and children's author, says this. I have read that during the process of canonization, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in their candidates. And although I have been unable to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness is not a sacred attribute. So joy matters. And because of Emmanuel, God with us, joy is possible. So this week, may curiosity and obedience open the door to joy for you. May God show us this week where he wants to enter in to the world around us. And may we be part of the redemptive narrative. May the incarnation happen again and again in our personal lives in Burlington and Hamilton, Oakville, Milton. May we sing our own magnificence as we participate with God making things right again. And as we approach this table, God comes to us again, this time in bread and juice. Because of the cross, things were made right again. Thanks be to God. The ushers can come forward. As the bread and juice are passed around, please take them and hold them. Um, then we'll sing a song, and then we'll uh, partake and pray together um, just after that.